don't fall into the trap of doing too many things at once. There's always something to be said to acknowledging the resources that you have and trying to build a architecture that is best for that set of resources. You have to focus on what is going to work for your company, your vertical, your customer specifically. If you look on Twitter or do a quick Google search, you'll find a ton of chatter about the foolproof D2C playbook. Everyone has ideas about the surefire ways that young D2C brands should be setting themselves up for success. Alex Kubo is here to tell you that those playbooks aren't as written in stone as you might think. Alex is the VP of e-commerce and digital marketing at Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. And on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, he explained how and why the Burrow team threw out the playbook when certain aspects of it fell flat. For example, Alex talks about the lessons they learned about the signals that pricing sends and why it's critical to put the right price on your product to attract the right customer, even if it means pricing higher than the playbook says. Alex also dives into what it means to actually be customer-centric and how Burrow stays in constant communication with customers. Plus, we discuss why marketing toward buying events or using a spray and pray strategy across a dozen channels is about as useful as setting your money on fire. So sit back and enjoy the conversation with Alex Kubo. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash upnextincommerce. All right, on to the show. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Alex Kubo joining us, who currently serves as the VP of e-commerce and digital marketing at Burrow. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Stephanie. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you here. It was cool reading a bit about Burrow's background and starting at Y Combinator. And I was thinking it might be fun to kind of start there back in 2016. Like, what did it look like starting the company? And then we can get into today. Totally. So I, I was fortunate that I actually met the two co-founders of Burrow while we were on the same business school program in Philadelphia. And back in the fall of 2015, actually, um, Kabir and Steven, the two co-founders and my classmates, were both furnishing their apartments as they moved into Philadelphia for the, for the program. And they had two very distinct but related experiences. Kabir purchased a sofa from uh, West Elm in Philly and 
uh, it didn't actually, or it wasn't going to arrive for about 12 to 16 weeks, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, nowadays people are pretty used to seeing those, those timelines, but, but originally it was like, well, this is not Amazon. Yep. And so Kabir actually used the, the cart, the dolly in his apartment building uh, and rolled it to West Elm and picked up a floor model and, br- and brought it home um, because the, the lead time was going to be longer than his first semester. Stephen went the classic sort of Ikea route, right? Where, you know, you don't come in with a, a to grad school with a ton of money and, and uh, need to furnish your space quickly. And so he did that. And then ultimately it's sort of a waste down the road, right? Like Ikea furniture, you can't move because of the, the, the quality of the, the materials and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the question ultimately became, why can't you have that higher end quality that you might find at like a West Elm or Pottery Barn or Peyton Barrel? But the convenience, the modern day conveniences that Amazon has made sort of the default expectation of consumers. So fast and free shipping, an easy delivery process, and be able to modularize that design so that you could set it up and not have to deal with like the IKEA hex key or like, you know, any of these really cumbersome assembly processes. And so sort of that concept was born. And out of that came a series of product innovation um, that ultimately Stephen and Kabir got into Y Combinator with just a pitch deck and no product and, and use that accelerator to develop the product, to prototype the product and ship it. And a, and a funny little anecdote is that from the time they incorporated the company to the time they shipped their first product was shorter than the period of time that West Elm quoted Kabir uh, to ship his, his first couch. That's great. And what were you doing when they were going through Y Combinator? I was actually, I was actually working on my own concept in the health and fitness space and ended up calling time on it right towards the end of the summer because of a number of challenges that I was having on my end and joined up with Steven and Kabir to help build out the demand side of the business. And I, mm-hmm. I had a, you know, a, a relatively intimate um, knowledge of the business and where they were at because we we're in all the same classes working on our, on our own businesses um, and I had helped them tangentially with sourcing components during our first year of the program because I have a background in mechanical engineering and they didn't have any background in kind of like physical hardware. Um, mm-hmm. And so there was already sort of that, the groundwork for a relationship. And then I was trying to move my own discipline into more of a consumer facing and ground level sort of marketing and, and product marketing role. And, and so it actually made a lot of sense. And so we, we set it up as a sort of a brief relationship to make sure that the working relationship was there, which it turned out very quickly it was. And so I have been tasked or had been tasked with basically just building demand and ran with it since. So since then, what does the world look like now compared to when you started and you were building out demand? I mean, I'm sure you guys were trying out Facebook and all the traditional platforms that everyone's like, every DTC brand should be on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're not here, where are you? Like, what does it look like then and now? So now it's a much more disciplined and much more properly positioned business than it was in the beginning. Two critical mistakes that were good, healthy mistakes to make in the early days were number one, brand positioning and product positioning. We had this idea in our head that, and it's sort of the classic Warby Parker pricing story of like, you know, they wanted to price at $45 One of their advisors and professors advised them not to do that because it would signal the wrong. Uh, value to the customer. We had a similar experience where for some reason in our heads, we had to price our couch under $1,000. And we made that decision because we wanted to be hyper-competitive on price and make it, make it sort of the default obvious solution. The problem that we failed to acknowledge is that consumers nowadays have very limited time to understand 
the differences and nuances between products. Mm -hmm. They're not stupid. They're not lazy, but they do have very limited time. And so you have to be very clear and explicit with them. And part of that is signaling. And one of the most powerful parts of marketing that I think is most often overlooked is a focus on pricing and what that does from a positioning standpoint. When people, a lot of shoppers were seeing our product under $1,000 and the fact that it shipped in boxes, which we were very forward with, um, because we focus so much on the attributes of the product and less on the experience around it, which is another step in our evolution, that people immediately equated those two things, low price and ships and boxes with a more expensive version of Ikea. Mm -hmm. And so then it was us talking to Ikea shoppers. And you're not going to convince an Ikea shopper to spend another $300, $400 on a sofa, right? What you need to do is talk to the West Elm shopper, the Pottery Barn shopper, the Crate and Barrel shopper. And so we actually, for a number of reasons, increased prices in late 2017, about half a year after we launched. How much did you increase them by? We went from originally the, the sofa was priced at $950. By the way, much different COGS profile as well at that point. We increased the price to $1095 to start. And so it was a pretty meaningful difference mm -hmm. um, on a percentage base, and, and especially when you talk about margins. Interestingly enough, everything you learned in sort of microeconomics about the relationship with the supply and demand curve sort of went out the window because we increased the price and demand shot through the roof. Wow. Did you get it in front of new people? Like what else were you doing to get it? I mean, we were, we were doing a lot of the same things in terms of like building full funnel architecture on paid social and paid search and that sort of thing. And, you know, again, applying a lot of those like early D2C playbook type approaches, which mm -hmm. ultimately turned out to not be the best approach for us, but nothing changed uh, substantially from a marketing perspective. We were still reaching a lot of the same people. It's just that we were now signaling to those people that we were a more, we belonged in the comparison set with a higher quality piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. That helps also because a lot of our value props, it's much easier to convince somebody who has shopped at, at one of these higher end brands and had to wait super long or had to go to a showroom and deal with a you know, frustrating shopping experience with this overbearing sales associate, pay for shipping, and ultimately like have to be home to get a piece of furniture delivered and like either take a day off from work. Again, much different world back then than it was today. But it's much easier to talk to those kind of people who've experienced those pain points and tell them, I'm going to take all of that pain away than it is to talk to somebody who's never experienced those pain points and doesn't need the higher quality piece of furniture. Again, the IKEA shopper and talk to them about all these future pain points that they've never experienced, but that we can help them avoid. That, that's maybe one of the biggest lessons learned is that people do not think much about the future. They're often mm -hmm. very, very focused on the present. And so as much as you want to talk about, you know, why you should go to the doctor every year, why you should go to the dentist every six months, it's like people are not going to react until they have a problem. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we, we've experiment, experimented a bunch with what is the leading sort of value props that we talk to consumers. And one of the ones that we talked about very early was this concept of modularity and how when you move into your next apartment, you can just purchase another seat instead of buying another, a whole new sofa um, to accommodate the new space or rearrange the existing configuration that you have um, to mm -hmm. fit the new space requirements. Problem is, people are not thinking about that. They don't really care. They, they can't think that far in advance of, you know, two to three to four years down the road when moving into the next apartment. And so we've, you know, deprioritized that in terms of communication and, and led with other things that are more immediate, like fast and free shipping. Yeah, got it. So you were mentioning earlier that the 
D2C playbook didn't work for you guys. Where now, even these days, it's like you can search that and you'll find a bunch of the playbooks and people still saying like, this is what you need to do to be yeah. successful. What were some other things that you did back then that you completely reversed and you're like, this doesn't work for us? Yeah. So I think, you know, first was not acknowledging how complex and lengthy the shopping journey is for a piece of furniture online. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it's a big investment. It's also mutually exclusive with something else in your home, right? Let alone the high price. You're not going to just buy another couch when you have an existing one in your home. Right. Like you need to think about getting that out or you have to do it, you know, right at the right moment with a moving mm -hmm. event or something like that. So the first thing that we had to realize is that what we can't do is architect our funnel around like existing sort of attribution technology or just rely on optimizing towards purchase events in digital channels. What we had to do is to look upstream and find correlations and causation between different upstream, midstream and bottom stream events to really architect a, a healthy, full funnel. Most of our campaigns are not architected towards purchase events. They're architected towards or optimized towards uh, something more upstream. What are the things upstream for a couple examples? Yeah, so um, I guess one, one interesting one that we've learned over time is there's a pretty clear correlation between add to cart and purchase. And we have like the, the cart abandonment rate is relatively steady. Like we do things over time, obviously, to improve that. But it's not something that fluctuates wildly over time. And so one of the things we can do is just optimize towards an add to cart versus a purchase. The other benefit of that is that it has, it often can happen in the first session. So when you see a lot of these, like the privacy restrictions right now, and a lot of the issues with with cookies going away and that sort of thing, it helps us. We've, we've actually always been architected to sort of bear that burden a little bit better than some of our, our, our other sort of D2C peers. And then the other thing besides um, the purchase journey was also that we were just doing way too many things at once. We had a, and we still have today, a very lean team. The difference between now and then is that back then we thought, the best approach was to spray as wide as we possibly could and activate, you know, 10 to 15 channels with me managing all of them and not doing a good job. Wow. That sounds very chaotic <laughs> and not fun. It not, not at all. Not at all. And only until we really peeled back and just focused on a handful of things and did them really, really well. That's when we actually started churning results. But more importantly, honestly, that's when we started actually learning what was working. Because previously, we were just spending a lot of money, we were generating sales, but we didn't really have a clear idea of where they were coming from. Again, because the purchase journey was so complex, right? It wasn't a problem that we could solve by just putting an attribution layer in somewhere. We had to really like hyper-focus on, on one or two things and, and do, them, do them really, really well. The, the concept of growth in the past has generally been focused on the top line. And what that means often for a lot of companies is to just go into as many different channels and try to tap into as many different demographics as you possibly can, and then find out what's working and what's not working. I think the issue is that like the broader investment community is sort of wisened up to that, right? And they're holding us more accountable on a unit economics and customer economics level versus just month over month top line growth, which in reality is just a vanity metric, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is more favorable to take a more disciplined approach, albeit potentially slower top line growth to really uncover those media insights that you can actually build a solid foundation on 
and grow a real uh, scalable, profitable company versus just something that's just, you know, scaling wildly at the top line, but in reality, it's just lighting money on fire. Mm -hmm. So for a higher priced product like Burrow and a longer buying cycle, what platforms would you advise other brands to look at and optimize for? And which ones would you pull back from? Yeah. So I think if you sort of acknowledge that it is, there are, there are a lot of things that people have to learn about the product. A lot of things that people have to get comfortable with and confident in the purchase. You think that a lot of these you know, shorter form mediums like paid social, paid search, right? It's just a quick second and a half interaction with an ad. They're not going to be as effective for a product like ours. And that's true. What we have... Um, indexed up on are things that are more storytelling mediums. So the earliest insight into this was we partnered with a small podcast in late 2017. And it's sort of one of those micro ones that's not on a network and Mm -hmm. just talks about fantasy football. And Mm -hmm. we just got introduced to um, the gentleman that runs it and did a small test and the results were incredible. And part of what we've learned over time as we've from that point, rapidly scaled the podcast program for us is that it's highly dependent on the host. And mm-hmm. the reason that it's highly dependent on the host is because the, the efficacy of that channel comes from the quality of the storytelling. And that is really what benefits our brand is mm-hmm. that if we go and we send a podcast host a product and they have the same amazing experience that our customers have, they can talk about it in a much more authentic way, but also a much more individual way. We've actually matured to not providing very detailed scripts to a lot of our podcast hosts and just a lot, just telling them to talk about what has been most exciting for you. Mm-hmm. And that really brings out the energy and the advocacy for the brand um, from the host. So I'd say like, it's really about focusing on storytelling medium. So I'd, I'd sort of lump like, you know, other video, long form video um, into that as well. Um, a little bit less of authenticity, but also helps communicate a lot of these little value props that add up to the major value proposition. So the other thing that comes to mind is branded content. I mean, I'm thinking about like something like Formula One, where now, you know, mm. the results are out, like everyone knows it worked really well for them. It was very, I would think like pretty organic, didn't feel like it was just like a, you know, brand push. How are you guys thinking about other kinds of content like this? You know, I, I don't know if we're at the stage yet where we can start thinking about that, that sort of thing. I think that, you know, Formula One is a great example, taking two sort of powerhouses and linking them together and, and where it's sort of the, the whole is greater than some of the parts. Mm-hmm. We're thinking a little bit less about something like that and creating more, more on like a micro scale, I would say, of branded content. So when you talk about something like the influencer arena, I am probably the biggest advocate against using influencers in the, in the, the context that they are used today. And first of all, just to clarify, like a true influencer is not somebody that has an influencer that says I'm an influencer in their Instagram, you know, profile mm-hmm. description, right? A true yeah. influencer is somebody that can speak to a community and elicit a response within a, and often within a specific category, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to give a, a beauty quote unquote influencer a furniture product and expect him or her to have uh, some outsized impact. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, 
Work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine, who knows where we're gonna go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about, publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. So you focus on the niche influencer who might only have 1,500 followers or something, but which is something I think I talked about early on in the show of like going through the comments of Instagrammers and seeing... Are the people in there asking, where can I buy that? Where did you get that from? Or are they just like, that's great. Cool. I love that. Like, what kind of engagement are you getting? will show if that person has influential power over their community or not. Totally. Totally. And obviously, like, you know, it's going to vary by vertical, too. I think this is sort of a an extreme example, right? Again, going back to like the very considered purchase, even our ability to measure the impact of that is going to be super limited. So what we've actually leaned into the influencer community for more so is partnering with actually photography influencers. One of the the bottlenecks and and problems with our vertical is that our products are very large and our photo shoots and video shoots require massive studios and massive crews that are very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, all of these people out there that can already take great pictures and already have really interesting homes need furniture. And so we can often partner with them in a much more economically scalable way to get a huge diversity and huge volume of content created that can showcase different styles, different aesthetics, um, different home types, um, and different personalities, and just sort of just build this library of content instead of having to like book homes ourselves and and you know go through the whole production process. So we've actually been doing that for a while, just purely based on like economic reasons. But it's, it's interesting to see that now I think there's going to be a massive shift towards organic for a number of other reasons. So you talk about like a lot of the privacy regulations that are going on right now, you know, over the last 10 years, the control of the voice or the conversation has shifted towards the consumer and towards the user. You see sort of like case examples of this with like GameStop, for example, like the retail investor just had a massive impact on the market. And from such a small player, right? Because that the control of the conversation momentum is shifting away from the brands that have the big budgets and towards mm-hmm. the customers that have the voice, the authentic following. That's the influencer of the year right there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> when totally. read it, I'm like, that's probably where all the other influencers are. I know. Um, an area that I haven't even thought to go, but we've had guests come on previously where Reddit is kind of how they figured out how to build their business. Totally. Totally. It may, I mean, it makes total sense, right? It's like, it's experts that are talking because they're passionate about what they're talking about, yeah. right? Not because they have a vested interest or they are trying to make money off of it. That, then that's where you get that authentic content from and like the actual truth. So how do you go about incentivizing that or, you know, structuring it so it can come in? Because I'm sure a lot of brands are like, I want my customers to talk about me and take pictures and do all the things. And yeah. then they just sit there and like nothing comes in. So what are you doing behind the scenes to make that happen? So it's less about focusing so much effort on trying to elicit that response just by trying to elicit it and more about really focusing on that product innovation and that experience that will naturally have that effect 
on people, right? Like you don't want somebody to talk about your product in a positive way because you're paying them to talk about it in a positive way. You want them to really advocate because that means that not only are they talking on the channel that you want them to talk about it, they're also having side conversations. And when people come over to their homes and they're asking, wow, where'd you get that beautiful sofa from? They're talking not just about, oh, I got it from Burrow. They're also saying like, and it has happens to have these stain resistant fabrics and it has like all of these great other materials and it was like modular and it was super easy to get it delivered and get it set up. And that's, that's what you really want to go off of. So I would say the, the biggest focus should be on nailing that product innovation and nailing that customer experience. And that's how you can count on that customer conversation to be generated rather than trying to chase down your customers and get them to talk about it um, in yeah. a less authentic way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that the days when people on Amazon are like, I got paid for this review or something mm-hmm. like those will be gone very soon because I don't know about you, but every time I go through a thread and I see that I'm like, don't trust you, don't trust you. <laughs> like, I just want to see the you know normal person who's reviewing it out of their own goodwill or not. Maybe they're mad. But yeah. I want that. I don't want someone saying I got a free product for this review. Like yeah. that just seems like those days are gone. Yeah, totally. Totally. So the other thing I want to kind of talk about is product development. I saw mm-hmm. that your co-founder and CEO said every single product we've ever launched has exceeded expectations and projections. And that's a testament to our customer-centric research-driven design process, yeah. which I want to dive into that and kind of hear. You know, I'm sure many brands are like, I want every single product of mine to be a success. And I want to... Ex- mm-hmm you know, expand my SKUs. And so how do you guys go about designing and crafting new products? Well, I think, you know, one thing that we should clear up is like the the concept of customer centricity is used so broadly and inauthentically, I think. A Mm -hmm. a lot of brands will claim customer centricity and they'll think that they're being customer centric because that's who their customer is and they just need to make money off of them. And so they'll say that they're thinking about all their needs. The problem is they're not actually talking to the customers they're assuming on behalf of the customers that they know what that customer needs or they're just they're just like you know testing messaging which is fine that's been like the traditional approach of of okay if you know I play up this this feature or this benefit versus this feature or this benefit and this one does better that's what the customer must want right but it almost becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there we take it to a much deeper level of not just with our customer community, but also our lead community, all of our email subscribers that have yet to join from and make an actual purchase with us and actually going to them and asking them very specific and lengthy questions. I remember the first time we sent out a customer survey about uh, one of the, the next products that we were going to launch and just wanted to get their, their input on like, is this the right product, number one? And B, like, what are those little things that like really bother you about this product? Mm-hmm. And did a ton of just open-ended response analysis based on that. The biggest surprise for me from that was the response rate for a, a quiz or rather survey that took probably a solid 10 to 15 minutes of someone's time to go through and really complete in depth, which they did. The response rate was astounding. And that sort of opened our eyes to, wow, this needs to become a, a regular part, a regular occurrence within our, our sort of work stream. How quickly were you sending this to them? Was it like a week after they got their product, give them time to set it up? Well, there's a, there's like? a couple different ones. So what we have is a couple different touch points that are automated or triggered based on somebody actually making their first purchase with us. So we had mm-hmm. obviously a post-purchase survey right away, which I think is one of the most underappreciated and can be most impactful. 
as survey points that, that people do or brands do rather. We also have an NPS survey, which going back to like, how do you elicit a response from customers and activate customers? NPS is going to be your biggest indicator of how much of that is happening in the background. Mm-hmm. And that is actually backed up by an element on the post-purchase survey where we ask, you know, is where you were referred by a friend, does that friend own borough furniture or do they not, or do you not know? And, and that can also give us a really solid indication of, of the impact. And so beyond the triggered survey points, we also do sort of intermittent uh, studies. And it's almost on a monthly cadence now Mm -hmm. of either focuses on new categories in general, or we've already identified the category, we've already identified the specific product, and we're trying to nail down like colors, color combinations, finishes, specific features, doing like conjoint analyses on like what is most important to this set of consumer. And it's, I mean, we've really taken it to a super, super deep, deep level. Have there been any products that you launch based off consumer feedback or maybe early launches where it's like, oh, they led us uh, astray with that one? Because I'd be like, I want a fluorescent pink couch. And then (laughs) I'd be like, oh, I had a little too much wine that night. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Fortunately, we're we're pretty good at statistics and we can identify outliers and not not get swayed (laughs) by them too much. Um, yeah, there actually there actually have not been, and I, I think it speaks volumes for this concept of authentic customer centricity. Where, and you can also cross compare between the customer set and the subscriber set, right? Like mm-hmm. the subscribers are a great audience because they have not purchased anything from you, or at least the subscribers that are not customers. And there's a reason why, right? Versus the customers, they did find something that you offered already, and they're already bought into the brand, and they're responding to you because they're still engaged. And so that's one set of needs that you need to fulfill. And then there's the other set of needs. And oftentimes there's a good amount of overlap, which is great for us. And oftentimes there's, there's not. And that's when we need to make choices around what, what is that, what does that offering look like and who are we really chasing with that? Yep. Yep. The other thing I think you mentioned in the past was around how you started thinking about zoning and mapping out like what else a person needs in their room, which Mm -hmm. to me was like, ah, brilliant. Okay. If someone got, you know, a couch and a little swivel chair and obviously they need pillows. And I want to hear like, did that method work? And how have you expanded that since you first started trying it? I think maybe a year and a half ago or so. It did totally. I mean, like you take like one concrete example of this is with the advent of coffee tables for us. Mm -hmm. Like we had, when we, we first launched the sofa, and then we launched our first line of coffee tables. And those were specifically designed dimensionally to work best with the sofa styles that were selling the most volumetrically. So we knew that there was, there was a high rate of match right between them. It wasn't like we were designing for something that we were only selling like you know 5% of our assortment or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where that took another level is in 2019, we launched the corner sectional. And then arrangements and configurations started getting a lot more varied and a lot more opened up actually additional demographics as well with more suburban satellite city homes with larger kind of room yep. spans. And that opened up a new category. And so what we had to do is to figure out, okay, well, if you have a you know, five-seat corner sectional, none of our coffee tables really make sense for that. And mm-hmm. so how do we create a coffee table that works perfectly in that configuration for that customer specifically. Um, And so that's when you saw in late 2020, we released um, our kettle and signal collections, which are more of a round geometry versus a rectangular geometry. And that happens to work really well with things like a a double chaise 
long king sofa where the chaise is sort of wrapped nicely around the, the round coffee table or the corner sectional, it creates a really nice sort of like, you know, conversation pit type uh, feeling. Uh, so it is very much about, about understanding how our pieces interact. And then the next level of that is like, what are the types of rooms that people are using it in? What are the, the actual dimensions of those rooms and what logically could somebody need the most given that yeah. room design and size? It seems like a lot of brands are kind of missing that right now because mm-hmm. oftentimes, I mean, whether it's furniture or a lot of other things, I'm like, where is that matching, you know, dresser set or where is the pillow that goes with that? And it feels like having to go around and look in different places and trying to find it myself. I'm like, why am I doing the work? Right. I just want, you know, a kit. Right. Just like, here's all the five things that match together. Right. But why is that so hard? I don't <laughs> get why that, you know, why can't brands do that? I think one of the biggest examples of this is that company Brandless that sort of mm-hmm. like, skyrocketed and but they were launching things in such unrelated categories that there was no you know bond between them and Mm -hmm. companies nowadays need to think a lot more about lifetime value than they had to necessarily in the past acquisition cost is growing and they can no longer just rely on first purchase profitability uh, in order to sustainably scale their business. And they need to think Mm -hmm. about building a relationship with the customer. And that often comes from creating a relationship and like being the default brand or site to go back to when they, when they have that next need and finding that perfect accompanying piece, right. Versus Mm -hmm. just like, you know, you buy a cleaning detergent from the company and you come back and, Oh, they're offering like, you know, soccer balls or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, okay, well (laughs) that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Which makes me think, I mean, it seems like the world is headed towards a more curated world where mm-hmm. right now, maybe back in the day, I would go to a Wayfair or something like that. And I'd be like, cool, I'm fine with scrolling, scrolling five years later, still scrolling and looking for what I want. It doesn't seem like consumers want that anymore. So how do you see the you know consumer journey and preference adjusting now where maybe a couple of years ago, that would be totally fine? Yeah, you know, I think it's sort of a, it's almost a byproduct of the ease of standing up a company nowadays. Like it's, it is exponentially easier to start a company, a direct-to-consumer company than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the market has just blown up in terms of the number of companies. And so that paralysis of choice has shifted from like going to a, you know, an old school Sears or Macy's and just having like a million different options, or as you put it, like a Wayfair and just like, you know, tens of millions of options to now like having to build a relationship with a brand and trust that that brand is making the right decisions. And so that's why we only, we offer a very select assortment of uh, fabric colors, leg finishes, arm styles. In reality, you know, we, we can house, you know, tens of, of component SKUs and offer tens of thousands of combinations to the customer. Mm-hmm. But what's, what's ultimately the most important thing is that we do it in a way that is still a very simple and clean experience for the customer so that they get that sense of they're creating their own product, but not to the extent of being overwhelmed. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think of myself on old school furniture sites and like staring at the screen from two inches away, trying to figure out the difference between this gray and that gray. And I'm like, yep. you know, and then you request swatches from them and they come 10 weeks later. Yeah. Um, yes. I've recently been through that experience. Yeah. Not yeah. great. No, it's, it's I, they not arrived fun. and I'm like, 
what was I trying to buy again? <laughs> right. I don't remember what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, it seems like you guys could also have a very localized approach where, like you mentioned earlier, if someone is looking from a very suburban area, like my hometown in Maryland, where, mm-hmm. you know, my expectations there would have probably been to have a huge wraparound couch. I've got mm-hmm. this big living room versus being in San Francisco or Austin, where now it's like, eh, limited, a little bit more limited space. And what can I yes. fit in these small areas? Yes. How do you think about that? In the first, I mean, the first step there that we're taking is more from like a content driven approach. So that mm-hmm. kind of goes back, loops back to the the way that we're treating influencers and, and leaning into the photography community and the different styles and aesthetics that they have, because what we are creating are sort of like base products. They are beautiful, but they are not like, you know, they don't belong in an architectural die dress, like editor's home, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're not the, the one-off piece that you designed and had custom built for 15 grand or something. What, what's beautiful about that is that they stand up to any environment that you are, you are putting them in. Um, whether it's like a very eclectic sort of like Austin, you know, ranch style home or the fourth floor walk-up apartment in New York or a more like sprawling home in, in Houston, and, and leaning in with more of that stylistic approach than necessarily like sub-segmenting, oh, we're only going to show love seats to this geography, or we're only going to show these massive sprawling corner sectionals to this other geography, because people still have varying needs. A lot of people have multiple rooms. So we don't want to limit necessarily the assortment, but we are trying to diversify constantly the styles and aesthetics that our, our products are showcased in. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So for the last big point, I wanted to kind of talk about the industry as a whole, like the DTC mm-hmm. industry, commerce, like what kind of things are you seeing or preparing for behind the scenes for what's to come? I mean, we could talk about the elephant in the room, which is Let's Iowa. talk about it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Let's do it. Most I haven't really talked too much about that because it's been so much like so up in the air and when's it going to go through and yeah. yeah, it feels more official now. So let's do oh, it. Oh yeah, it's official. <laughs> you know, it's... It's a, uh, this is a tough thing. And I think it's a reckoning for a lot of these companies, again, where it's been so easy to start a company and just like go on Facebook and you'll generate some sales and go to a VC and you'll show a hundred percent month over month growth and they'll throw a bunch yeah. of cash at you. That's changing. And I'm thankful for it as much as like, I curse the fact that we don't have this GPS anymore. I am very thankful that we don't, um, because it's forcing us to mature as marketers and we're fortunate also that we've always, we've had to embrace this sort of like appreciation for marketing 101 and really lean into principles. So I think that is, that is the most important thing is like, there is a day of reckoning for marketers everywhere in the D2C space to take a step back and really appreciate the principles of marketing and evaluate your program architecture overall and make sure that it's in a healthy state. And not just because you're, you know, you're, your ad to cart rates or your conversion rates are, are really high from this one campaign or this one ad unit, but really overall, how is your program operating? and Where are the weak points and how can you supplement those? So if you were starting over day one today, mm-hmm. what kind of things would you look at? Like what metrics would you look at? What kind of things would you put in place to start building up that healthy funnel? Yeah. Um, I think what you would look at is, is sort of like the abandonment rate through the funnel, right? Of the people who click through to your site, how many of them end up viewing a product? Of those people, mm-hmm. how many of them add, end up adding it? Of those people, how many of them add, end up actually proceeding to step one of checkout, step two, step three, step four? And sort of find out what that makeup looks like 
And obviously, you're going to spend a lot of time on conversion rate optimization and trying to improve those the outputs of each step of that funnel. But that sort of paints a picture of, okay, how broad do you have to invest the top of that funnel if your ultimate target at the bottom of the funnel is X? And what does that reach look like? And what are the best mediums to do that to actually elicit a response and get people onto your site or into your store or you know, signing up for whatever service you provide? That, I think, is what I would, I would take as step one. The other one is I would just consider for the vertical that you're in and the product that you're trying to sell, how much of a story do you need to tell? And that will help inform how much you need to invest in more storytelling mediums than more immediate sort of click to buy type mediums. Also, how visual is your product? That will tell you how much you have to be like content both content driven versus um, you know leaning into things like search or or audio formats or or anything like that. And that that can really help govern your channel choices. And then the last thing is just like don't don't fall into the trap of doing too many things at once. Like there's always something to be said to acknowledging the resources that you have and trying to build a architecture that is best for that set of resources, not just the one that happens to be doing really well for the, the other portfolio company that your VC backer is like constantly in your ear about. You have to focus on what is going to work for your company, your vertical, your customer specifically. Yep. Yeah. I love all that. Is there, or are there any tools right now that you're very excited about that are either new or just, you know, time tested? You're like, we're going to keep using these forever because they do wonders for our marketing efforts. You know, I think a lot of it, it's less about tools and more about like information sources. So we've partnered with a number of different companies over time to do things like customer enrichment and really understand our customers to a deeper level. Again, going back to that concept of customer centricity, not just like talking to them directly, but also learning much, much more about them. And one, you know, one of the biggest traps that a lot of companies fall into is they think of their customer as an average customer. And the problem is they're failing to acknowledge that customers are not, you know, one sort of monotonous group. They are a system of clusters and cohorts. And what you have to really have to do is to understand what is unique and important about each of these clusters, and then create a messaging architecture, a channel architecture, a product offering that really speaks to each of those clusters individually. And so from like a tools perspective, it's more about these data enrichment, customer data enrichment type platforms, and then using those to create these clusters and cohorts and really understand those customers. Again, for us, like, an attribution platform, not super helpful because of the complexity and both mix of offline and online activity that it takes to get to the purchase point. Much more about really understanding the customer and then applying a, a marketing one-on-one approach to it. Cool. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Oh boy. Are you ready, Alex? Sure. Oh boy. <laughs> What's one thing you don't understand today that you wish you did? I think I would like to understand more about the global supply chain. I think over the last uh, six months and to a year, maybe, we've seen very intimately the impacts of a broken or strained supply chain. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for uh, D2C companies to innovate on the supply mm-hmm. chain side. And we focus so much on how do we innovate on the customer uh, side that we focus so much less on the you know, supply side of the business. So I think that is where 
and it will become increasingly important for marketers and uh, supply ops to be speaking kind of and working very much hand in hand to grow a company together. Um, so I do wish I had more of that background. Yeah, that's great. And you guys just raised around, and I think that money, a part of it was to focus on international supply chain efforts, right? Like yes. figuring that out better. Yes, totally. So you're you're already right in the right spot, <laughs> the right time. <laughs> You'll have to let everyone else know, you know, the insights. You'll have to come back yes, and tell us what definitely. you learn next year. Definitely. What's up next on your reading list or podcast list? Uh, there's actually a couple uh, books I think that I want to reread. I'm, I'm one of those weird people that really likes to read uh, technical books. And so there's a couple of conversations we're having right now about pricing and there's a book called Power Pricing that I love. Okay. There's also one by a gentleman named Douglas Holt called The Cultural Strategy that I think is one of the most foundational and important books, especially for the world today. And again, how the customer controls the conversation and understanding how to position your company and your messaging around cultural movements and ride momentum versus um, trying to create that momentum yourselves as uh, you have in the past. The last one is Shoe Dog, actually. Yes, uh, good book. amazing book. This would now be, I think, my third time reading it. But it is a way to, I think, you know, a lot of people have been talking about languishing right now. And the fact that we've just, we've been in this environment for so long and we're yearning for that, that sort of personal interaction and so tired of being in the sedentary and, you know, fixed on a digital screen environment. Mm -hmm. And I think Shoe Dog can help sort of reignite a lot of that passion, right? Because it's like, wow, this like multi-billion dollar company started at such a microscopic level. Mm-hmm. And it really helps you understand the power and the capability you have as an individual to create something like that and can help really re- reignite that passion. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite books. We actually, we have a podcast called The Story that tells the unknown backstory of people who changed the world. And we highlighted him in that one of the episodes because we're like, this story is too good not to yeah. tell and tell and tell until everyone hears it and gets motivated and, you know, starts their thing today. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's awesome. I feel like they need a movie out or something. Do they have one? I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there will. There has to be one. Too good of a story not to. (laughs) What's one thing you're secretly curious about? Other than supply chain. (laughs) TikTok. Yeah. Are you all on there? We are are not. Um, Okay. From a demographic perspective, in the past, I would say, year and a half, it hasn't made sense. The program Mm -hmm. is continuing to grow. The demographic adoption is continuing to expand. And so I am interested in what it looks like going forward. I think it is also like a challenging medium for a lot of brands that are really uh, attached to high production quality content because what scales mm-hmm. the best on that platform is very lo-fi content, yep. very organic yep. and authentic content. And it's, it creates sort of this shift for a lot of companies in the, in the way that they think about creative. I'm curious in that we are we're actively learning about our potential approach to that channel, but also curious about how does that platform and program evolve over time? I've not heard great things about the ad platform that they've built so far, which has part of been partially why we've been hesitant to really go after the yep. channel, but that will evolve. They will crack that code. Mm-hmm. And what that looks like, I don't know, but, but I'm certainly curious. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely heard 50-50 on TikTok. Some brands saying it works wonders, but they're yeah. the ones creating their own content, maybe yeah. not in the ad partner programs. And but yeah, I also think from a consumer standpoint, like how it's going to evolve, because at least me personally, I think I got 
signed out and I couldn't remember my password. Oh no. And I just never signed back in. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> how much did I really like it then? Or maybe I know that just scrolling is not good for me. Yeah. That was actually, that was me with clubhouse. Actually. I was like, Oh, same. I I'm loved not- clubhouse for the first seven yep. days and was on it constantly. And I, I have not been back on it. Yeah. I think it got crowded. I mean, now it's just so busy. So many people talking about so many, so many things that yeah. didn't feel curated. Yeah. TikTok kind of started feeling like that to me too, where like it was like 50 50 of yeah. like, I like these videos and the next nine I don't yeah. like. And like there totally. has to be curation to keep at least us involved, it sounds like. I mean, I, honestly, that's what happened with the podcast world too, mm-hmm. right? Like it became yep. everybody could launch their own podcast. Yeah. Right. And then there's yes. so much content. The biggest problem with podcasts now is discovery. The only mm-hmm. way you learn about what to, what to listen to is through your friends. Yep. And so that, that concept of discovery is so, it's such a challenge for podcasts right now. And I think that's what Clubhouse is sort of like going through at a, a you know, a thousand times faster their learning mm-hmm. cycle. Yeah. yeah. I think the next couple of years will be interesting because I mean, they've been talking about discovery issues back to even when I worked at Google, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out Google podcasts. And that was an issue back in 2017. So I'm like, why hasn't this been solved yet? It should be so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Alex, it's been awesome having you on the show. Such a fun conversation. Where can people find out more about you and Burrow? Burrow.com would be the easiest place. What about you? Are you on LinkedIn? I am. I am. (laughs) Uh, LinkedIn, Alex Kubo. I'm not sure if you can actually search me to find me, but I'm I'm sure you you could. I'll find you. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.